0: Hello everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home In My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. I finished reading the book The Case Against Free Speech by P.E. Moskowitz a few weeks ago. I've been processing and thinking about what I read because it's been paradigm shifting for me. It reinforced some concerns I've had, but also went much deeper to the point that I'm now wondering if the U.S. fascination with the concept of free speech isn't just a distraction from the real issue of social disparity and the fact that, like any other right, what matters most isn't what's on paper, but whether one has actual capacity to access it. I've been posting thoughts and incidents that have come up after reading it to gauge feedback, I guess as a form of testing to see if other people see what I see or recognize something I'm missing. The book is heavily and well-cited, and there's no way I could possibly go through all of the examples that Moskowitz provides. I will say that when I saw claims that seemed extraordinary, I did stop reading and start Googling. But much like my experience with my religious deconversion, I was stunned to find that it was my understanding of reality and history that was lacking. The evidence for it was in plain sight. When I fact-checked the fact claims for things like legal opinions or history, I found the reality I had in my head was flawed and not aligning with facts. And as a result, I had to think about what that meant for my understanding of many of the ideas and concepts being addressed. I think the book is worth a read for anyone who wants a more robust dive into this issue. The citations as well are fascinating reading. Do note that what I'm going to talk about with regard to my experience reading this book is going to include some of what was in the book, but also a lot of where my head went when I read it and after I put it down. Just a reminder, that's why this podcast is called At Home in My Head, because it's about where my head is with many of these things or what happens in my head as I interact with guests bringing their own experiences and thoughts to the table. I never want to tell anyone what to think. In fact, that thought actually disgusts me. After I left conservative religion, I realized that all we really have in this world is what we experience and how we process that, what we think about it, and we should be allowed and encouraged to pursue that. By way of example, there was an exchange I had in my prior activism that I want to share. A young man wrote in to ask questions. If I remember right, he was about 16. He was involved in religion, but it was clear he was questioning. He'd been listening to some of the work I was involved in putting out, and so he wrote in and asked some questions. Basically, what do you think of this or that religious claim or concept? So I wrote back and gave him my thoughts. He wrote back later to say he'd talked to his pastor and he had more questions. So he asked and I answered again, just giving him my thoughts. This went on for another email or two before I realized that what was actually happening was that I was having a conversation with his pastor using this young man as a conduit. And this model could go on forever without resolution. It wasn't that I didn't want to help him, but I didn't actually see how this was helping. The boy wasn't interjecting anything, just giving me a summary of what his pastor said and asking me to respond to it. Finally, I issued a response as I had done a few times already, and I ended by telling him what I just said, that this appeared to have evolved into me having a proxy discussion with his pastor. And that his voice, the boy's voice, was nowhere in there. I told him this could go on endlessly, but what ultimately mattered was not what I thought about what his pastor was saying or what his pastor thought about what I was saying, but what this young man thought about all of it. That at some point, he was going to have to sit down with all of this information and figure out what he thought about it, because that's really what matters in our lives, what we think about what's going on around us and within us. I told him he needed to stop asking his pastor what he thinks and stop asking me what I think and look at the situation and ask himself what he thinks about all of it. Because whatever that means, he has to own it. I can't own it for him. The pastor can't own it for him. It's his thoughts, his life, his beliefs, and he needs to sort it out. I didn't say it in a mean way, like go figure it out for yourself, but in a positive way. Trust in yourself as you navigate this issue because you seem like someone who's honestly interested in the truth and doing what's right. He wrote me back and thanked me for engaging. But then he said something that made me sad. He said that at 16, no one had ever asked him what he thought about anything. That idea alone was foreign to him. He's two years away from legal adulthood and no one has ever suggested that he think about the world around him and trust his own experience and ability to learn and draw conclusions. I don't know if that scored any points in my favor, if he went away realizing that only one person in this back and forth was suggesting that he was capable of figuring it out for himself, that only one person wasn't intent on telling him what to believe rather than asking him to think about what he believes. But I hope that at least had impact that I wasn't scared of letting him think for himself, when apparently everyone else around him was encouraging otherwise. I won't ever know what happened to him. I won't ever know what he decided. But I do know one thing. I made him aware that he didn't have to absorb an ideology like a sponge, that he had a right and an ability to question things and should consider himself capable of understanding issues or examining them further if he needed more information. I like to think I at least provided him a chance to own his life. It wasn't important to me to tell him what to think or what to do. It was important for me to free him up to figure it out for himself. He may have gone on to leave his church. He may be a pastor now. He may still be questioning and struggling with these same issues. I have no idea. But at least he now knows that whatever he is in his journey He has a right to own it if he wants to. And that's kind of what I'm offering here. I'm not telling anyone what to think. I'm not telling you what is in this book. I'm telling you this is how what I read impacted me and my thinking. It's what shifted about my understanding of the world around me after I put this book down. If you want to know what the author actually has to say, you're going to have to read the book. If you want me to tell you what the truth is, you're going to be disappointed. All I can tell you is what I took away based on my personal situation and what I thought before I read it and what I'm thinking now. You might think it's a load of crap. You might find that it also impacts how you think about it. You might find this whole thing is just a waste of time. I can't really tell you what to do with this information. You're on your own with that. So I decided to ask a friend of mine who's worked in law enforcement and for the military what he understood free speech to mean. This is someone who spent his entire adult life defending the United States and U.S. laws. So I wondered if he would give the same answer I would give. What does the guy who was willing to kill and die for this nation's constitution think about what's in that document about speech? He was actually hesitant to even answer. I think he suspected some sort of rhetorical trap was being set, but I simply genuinely was curious. I finally had to throw down what I understood it to be as a baseline and ask if that was also his understanding. I said that my understanding of free speech in the U.S. was that the government was not allowed to restrict speech, and most especially speech that was critical of the government. Before reading this book, I probably would have tossed in all the caveats that I've learned as well about not promoting violence or illegal activity. But when it comes to the speech part of the First Amendment, those restrictions aren't mentioned. The First Amendment is three-pronged. It says we can't make laws restricting religion, we can't make laws restricting speech, and we can't stop people from assembling peacefully or petitioning the government. Note that these things are not contingent on one another. They're listed separately, as three things the government can't impede. There are actually no caveats in the First Amendment prohibiting any sort of speech. But again, foundationally, it was crafted, at least as I learned it, to ensure people wouldn't be thrown in prison for speaking out against the government. And I think most average citizens in the U.S. understand it similarly, that is, I think if I were to say the government can't throw people in prison for standing in the town square and saying that the government sucks or that some law or politician is problematic or harmful and should be repealed or impeached, that most people would agree that's mainly what that amendment was centered around. In a prior episode, I talked about a case in our history that promoted the iconic idea that you can't shout fire in a crowded theater and how that actually was used by the government to shut down speech critical of the draft and distributing pamphlets that encouraged young men to not comply with it. This is actually the sort of speech I was told would be protected under the Constitution, but in fact, it's apparently espionage against the state. Later, the entire thing was repealed. But currently, precedent is that you're running afoul if you encourage lawless action, which was encouraged in the pamphlets. So what we're saying is that people can complain about laws, but not challenge them. We have an idea that the government's line in the sand was promoting violence when clearly the courts were interpreting the Constitution as saying that merely challenging laws was enough to get you imprisoned for espionage. If I suggest that the draft is illegal and that young people should not comply with it and should burn their draft cards, I'm in legal jeopardy. And I get that in a person's head, this may seem to make sense. For example, you can assemble but not break any laws or disturb the peace. You can criticize and try to change the laws, but you have to comply with them in the meantime. There are two problems with this. First, people who don't have a platform, the marginalized and vulnerable, can't buy a media outlet to get their message out. The billionaire can. He can buy outlets and marketing teams and lobbyists and drop gobs of money to make sure his views are heard, or, more disturbing, that his views are obscured or misrepresented in order to influence the public with mass disinformation. If we tell marginalized people that they can't be disruptive or they can't defy laws to make their point, how will they get public exposure or attention? I mean, we have the state promoting policies and laws that are literally killing people. Our health care system that denies and restricts access to health care is killing people. Our injustice system is killing people, murdering them in broad daylight and lying about it. There have been over 200 pieces of recent legislation that will destroy the lives of trans people, trans families, and trans children. Some of those laws are literally genocidal according to the United Nations. How do we reasonably ask people to respond to lethal state policies peacefully and in compliance until they can ask to have their grievances addressed. Is the same state that's trying to kill you going to help you get this fixed? And if the policy is lethal to you and others, you're just supposed to die waiting for assistance? Don't upset the apple cart while you're quietly being murdered. Don't get too rowdy when our knee is on your neck. It reminds me of the conversation about George Floyd I had with Captain Hunter, where I asked, what's a citizen supposed to do? We are fully expected to stand there and watch police murder a man in custody. If we step out of line, while it's happening in front of our faces, we are the ones in legal jeopardy. We would, as even Captain Hunter had to admit, likely also end up dead or in custody. If we succeeded in saving that man's life, we would pay with our own or have no way to show that he would have died otherwise and have been legally charged with interfering with the arrest. So yeah, I guess the plan here is for us to die quietly. We can respectfully ask the system that's killing us to please stop and hope that it will. But really, do you see DeSantis doing a 180 on trans issues just because he's told what we already know? that his policies are going to kill trans people. He knows this. That's a feature to this man who runs this state, not a bug. It's what he actually wants to do, make the existence of trans people criminal so that they will either leave or die. And our federal government exists, but so what? It's still happening. How do we expect people to react to that? It's ridiculous to have a government focused on persecuting and killing a population in the nation and then have laws in place that say you can only respond to that within the same legal system that's oppressing and killing you. The system is the problem. The laws and policies are designed to provide huge platforms to people who want you dead and nothing close to that level of public reach for you as the person or group being targeted. But if you gain traction... Do the only thing you can to gain attention, which is make a fuss, you're the one running afoul of the horrible laws. And to add insult to injury, what is legal protest can and is redefined by the state to make your voice and your ability to advocate for yourself even smaller. So comply with the laws when you assemble and when you appeal to the state authority for your grievances, and then watch as they make that little island of what's legal smaller and smaller. A good example is DACA. When Trump was running for office, he painted himself as very pro-DACA, and the public was very much in favor of granting citizenship to DACA residents who had grown up here. But once Trump was elected, he vilified immigrants and fomented public anger against them. DACA shriveled and died. And any DACA recipient who stood up to speak out about it did so at their own personal peril, as some of them found out after they were deported from the only home they'd ever known for standing up and speaking out. The government can't have laws that infringe on free speech, is what I was taught. But isn't a law that threatens to deport you if you advocate for yourself at a protest an infringement on your speech? because I'd be terrified to bring my grievances to the same state that was threatening me with deportation. And this is where cases got even stickier, with cases showing that the government absolutely does use the law to infringe on speech. It just doesn't overtly say that you'll be arrested for criticizing the government. The further problem that the book points out is that in a system that starts out with so much disparity, people who are living on the streets in abject poverty and people who are some of the wealthiest billionaires on the planet, that rights and resources will always be more accessible to those with wealth than to those without it. In fact, for most marginalized people, Just obtaining access to your guaranteed rights means hiring an attorney, which is no small expense to take on. And that's just talking about money, not time and stress dedicated to a legal battle that you know you may not win, even if you're right. Rights are fully handed to some people, but for others, they can only be obtained through significant cost and sacrifice simply because of how our system is set up. Someone who can buy a media outlet gets more speech than someone who is living on the streets and someone with lobbyists and deep pockets has more influence over the laws than the individual or the worker who is on strike. For example, if workers at a company decide to go on strike, that's a protest. It's a form of speech. In some cases, however, the companies cancel health care of workers, some of whom cannot survive without access to treatment and medication or who have children who can't survive without it. Loss of access to healthcare is life threatening, and our government in the United States is extremely complicit in making sure that companies are tied to healthcare access. That insurance is unaffordable to the average citizen unless it's supplied through the government or a company. The government could expand healthcare as a right to every citizen, but it doesn't. It maintains a system and fights against direct citizen access, thereby handing employers the leverage to literally kill employees who dare to exercise free speech in the form of a worker's strike. Is that not the government infringing on speech? The process to secure rights that are denied is daunting to the point of discouraging most people from even pursuing them. So anyone who gets those rights without a legal battle is already at a huge advantage over everyone else based on how our system secures rights for people. The system is discriminatory and set up to maintain the power imbalances that we see around us. To suggest that any right or resource access is just as available to everyone is demonstrably false. And if our system was honestly about promoting equity, then, almost 250 years later, we would not see unhoused families in the same system as billionaires. I ran across a public court filing maybe a year or two ago where a woman reported a coworker for sexual harassment to her HR department. After the report, her manager became hostile toward her and her work reviews took a sudden downturn. She reported this to HR as well, since this would negatively impact her career opportunities within the company. But the company's HR department was so slow in their handling of the situation that she eventually felt that quitting her job was the only way to get away from the daily hostility she was confronted with when she came to work, still assigned to the same department under the same manager that she was reporting to HR. During her exit interview, after she resigned, she was told that her severance would be withheld unless she signed away her right to sue the company over this issue. Not being independently wealthy, she needed the money and signed the paper. Later, when she tried to pursue the issue through an attorney, instead of the court understanding the duress she'd been under, they merely pointed out that under the law, she had signed away her right to sue. And that was the end of it. In fact, that was the actual defense that the company presented. They never denied the harassment, They never denied the HR department had let this hostile situation linger until it was unbearable. They offered nothing to say that she had not experienced every horrible work-setting violation that she claimed. They admitted they did in fact hold her severance hostage until she signed away her right to legal recourse and argued they had every legal right to do so. And under our laws, they were in the right. We took it all injustice. Those are unjust laws. And based on statistics showing women are far more likely to experience sexual harassment, here we have an example of how we have gender equity in our constitution with clear gender inequity in practice in our laws. But further, with people of all genders, this abuse in the workplace is a form of classism, where someone with a bigger salary and more power is doing the harassing or letting the harassment continue within their department. Surveys that address workplace harassment toward men and women, they seem to still break the research into a binary, found that by far most people didn't even bother to report the situation because there was a huge lack of confidence that workplaces will take it seriously and effectively address the problem. So what good is protection under the law? when the same laws make it daunting to petition and difficult to win that protection. How is that good or useful law? And the cherry on top? When I googled the names of the employees named in the complaint, one of them, the manager, was still employed at the company a few years after the case. So the company chose not to defend the accused employees and in fact, did all it could to avoid having to defend them, strong-arm the person who was wronged, and then use the law to stop them from seeking recourse, and then kept at least one of the employees they couldn't defend on the payroll. How can any woman at that company feel safe when a manager that looks the other way at sexual harassment is kept on the payroll even after they punished a woman who sought relief from her hostile work environment? As an aside, I'm including a link in the description of a video comedy short that someone sent me about workplace sexual harassment the very morning I sat down to finalize this episode script with a note that said, why does this feel scarily accurate? They aren't someone that I DM with often and they sent it to me randomly, but it mirrors the case I'm talking about. I saw it as art imitating life, so I thought I would share. Is there free speech there? Of course not. Facing harassment, being threatened with loss of income, those are substantial barriers to being able to lodge a complaint to try and correct a situation. And the same government that issues the laws saying this harassment cannot happen allows laws that screw you over if you try to stop it from happening to you. So is that government involved in suppression of speech? I think it is. It's the government saying we aren't seriously interested in giving employees real teeth to defend against harassment in the workplace. It is the law working to perpetuate injustice and oppression while giving itself cover in the form of a code that says this sort of harassment is illegal. But what good is making something illegal if you're going to make enforcing it nearly impossible and even dangerous to people's ability to access necessary wagers to continue buying food and housing? One of the things that happened to me when I was reading this book is that I started to rethink what infringement of speech actually looks like. My image of some comically overt law saying you'll be hanged if you insult the king was not nearly as imaginative enough for what's really happening here. The state has all kinds of creative ways to shut you down and shut you up and punish you if you try to advocate for yourself as a marginalized individual. People who don't have access to resources and power and a platform are the ones who need to advocate the most for improving their lives, and those are the very people in our society that the law keeps from resources, power, and platforms. We say we're a nation committed to equity, but we enforce oppression. If we're looking at systemic oppression, then this harassment complaint wasn't just about a company, especially when we have stats showing that it's bigger than one company. We have a nation where people are being oppressed, and the law isn't effective in stopping it. And when a person stands up to complain and actually use the system to fix it, they will fail. Because that same system doing the oppression does not allow for an honestly effective remedy. Even if some individual case succeeds, every other person who follows still has to sue to enforce that right for themselves. Because if, for example, sexual harassment ended when one case was victorious, we wouldn't still have sexual harassment happening and we do. So someone landing victorious in court may help them, I suppose, but it doesn't actually fix the systemic injustice that continues as usual once the case is over. But this isn't just a complaint about a private entity. It's a complaint about systemic oppression and a government that contributes to that oppression by not providing effective mechanisms to end it and by actively enforcing laws that perpetuate it. We can complain about it, much like I'm doing here. But if we stand up and push back against it, as the woman in this complaint did, that same system we are petitioning will shut us down most every time. And not just in this case, but in all the cases that don't happen, because people preemptively expect this same unhelpful result. So they don't have the money, time, and emotional stamina to withstand a lawsuit with a corporate entity when the enticing alternative is Just go find another job if you can. Our government helps to perpetuate the systemic oppression and shuts enough of us down when we push back to teach the rest of us that trying to work through the legal process to petition the government to enforce our codified rights will fail and potentially be quite costly in more ways than just money. And this gets to one of the prongs in the case against free speech. Does it matter what's on paper if it can't be effectively executed in reality? When a law says I have a right to be free from a hostile workplace, but in reality there are hostile workplaces and the remedies for them are so ineffective that nobody even bothers to try and use them, when we all know the employee is likely to lose that bid for justice, then who cares what's on paper? How can that protection possibly matter if, as a society, we aren't committed to actually fixing the issue. When the cost to simply pursue my right to a non-hostile workplace, not guarantee it, but just request it, is far greater than simply finding another job, we have an unjust system that is set up to support hostile workplaces and not employee safety. And when it comes to free speech, obviously we are all in favor of a right to speak without government oppression. But that's irrelevant if the way the law actually works doesn't provide people with a right to effective speech, and the laws actually are intimidating people so that they don't speak. What happens when we have a good idea on paper, but in practice, it's not so good? What happens when what's on paper actually has no impact on the reality of people living day-to-day in a system that isn't working for them? When the only speech they're provided access to is ineffective speech that won't bring about the significant changes needed to ensure justice. Or when the laws in place make us afraid to speak or let us know that we will likely lose our bid if we try and unlikely to see any change from it even if we do pursue it and win. Are laws that actively and purposely discourage people from speaking and infringement? I would say yes. What happens when your society is that hostile environment, and the state is part of the problem, much like the ineffective HR department whose only goal is to make the process so slow and painful that you'll finally just give up and go back to your unjust life in an unsafe space. Is a transgender person in Florida supposed to trust that system to provide them with relief? With justice? A state that is knowingly and purposely passing laws that put their lives and health at risk? A state that has cobbled together a group of hack physicians to sign on to policies that are condemned by every major medical and mental health association? That's the system they should trust to petition for justice? Why would anyone trust that system that is literally trying to kill them would be the source of their remedy? Dead people don't have speech. Intimidated people don't have speech. What are these laws in Florida if not the government infringing on speech? When the state can pass laws that make you terrified to even step out your front door to be recognized in public for who and what you are, how is that not the state restricting your speech? When someone is terrified to be identified as trans, when the state has rolled out propaganda, that has a trans person unsure of which of those strangers out in public all around them believe that they're a sexual predator that needs to die, how can they effectively advocate for themselves? How do you stand up and tell your story when being identified could get you threatened and killed? And isn't the state playing a role in this? Isn't the government here working to create this situation where people are legitimately afraid to stand up and tell their stories? Isn't it the case that we are living under a federal system where this is all being allowed to happen? How is that not the government abridging freedom of speech? Our courts have said that voting and campaign contributions count as speech. Where I live, you can't vote without a permanent residence, which immediately disenfranchises every unhoused person. If voting is speech and we allow laws that keep people without a permanent residence from voting, how is that not a law against speech? We have laws that prohibit non-citizens from voting. Interesting fact, nothing in the U.S. Constitution requires citizenship to vote. That stipulation was added to our federal laws in the late 1990s. The Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigration Responsibility Act of 1996 is where it became illegal for non-citizens to vote in federal elections over 200 years after the Constitution was written and less than 30 years ago. If voting is speech and a person is unhoused, then how are laws requiring an address to register to vote, not a government restriction on speech? If the government passes a law saying a non-citizen can't vote, how is that not a government restriction on speech? These people are being stripped of speech and have done nothing wrong or illegal. One is just poor and the other is a resident who is governed by the very laws they have no say in. During our own revolution, we declared that taxation without representation was intolerable, and yet we disenfranchised taxpaying citizens and residents, and we robbed them of a voice. It isn't just the way our capitalist system is set up that affords our inequity around speech. Our very laws ensure that wealthy people have more of it, like every other resource in our society. Each state gets two senators... This means that a state like California that in 2019 had 39,512,233 residents and a state like Wyoming that in that same year had just over half a million residents, both still only get two senators. And those senators each get one vote in the Senate. If voting is speech, then aren't we restricting the speech of every voter in California when we make votes from Wyoming that much more powerful and influential by law? How is that not the state telling the people of California that they can't have as much speech as residents of Wyoming? And if political contributions are speech and we live in a competitive and inequitable system, isn't the natural result of the law going to be that wealthy people have more speech? When the government refuses to raise wages in a system where company profits continue to climb, they're using the law to increase economic inequity. Corporate profits are ultimately wages withheld from salaries. As my wage goes down, the profit goes up and vice versa. Laws that keep wages low then are actually providing for more profits for corporations who then have more speech capacity in the form of political campaign donations and lobbying power. And it's not more speech simply because of our economic model. Again, the government sets the nation's minimum wage. What happens when our government grants subsidies or other support to companies that then spend on government influence in return? Is crony capitalism government interference in speech? Is our private system under capitalism really working independently of government and law, or is it intertwined with government regulation and tax dollars? When the government favors business over workers, when laws are passed or interpreted to help businesses break unions, isn't that government restriction on speech? I just read an article about the DOJ intervening in a case that could impact lawsuits against the railroad company that's responsible for a toxic spill and derailment in Ohio. The case is between a railroad company and a worker, and yet our Department of Justice has inserted itself. Why? Our Supreme Court Justice Kagan actually asked the DOJ what they were doing there. I'll link to the article in comments, but Kagan asked, Mr. Gannon, the Solicitor General has a choice whether to participate in this suit or not. And so please don't take this at all as criticism. It's genuine interest and curiosity. What is it about this suit that has made you decide to participate? Gannon is there defending the railroad company against this private citizen who is now dealing with cancer. So now this citizen not only has to face a large and powerful corporate lawsuit, But the entire weight of the government has stepped in to help that corporation in this case where the DOJ has a choice whether or not to involve itself and where a SCOTUS judge is baffled about why the DOJ would choose to be there. And the people in Ohio impacted by this derailment, I'm sure, are watching to see what happens to this man in court. I'm sure that the suits building steam right now are paying close attention as well. The fact is, our legal system, including the legislative branch of our government, is shutting down, discouraging, and contributing to the inequity of speech all the time. And there is no clear line between private and public, because the private power comes from the way we govern, from our laws. I think this was the biggest paradigm shift for me while I read the book. I was always that person who said, This situation isn't about free speech, because free speech only protects you from government restrictions. And I feel really duped right now. I had this idea that in the US, our government is one thing, and our non-government institutions are totally separate. But in fact, the government has its hands in everything. It's a tool used by powerful private people to further disenfranchise the people they exploit so that they become more and more powerless to self-advocate. They take a small, vulnerable population and get someone like DeSantis to dehumanize and vilify them to keep the masses busy arguing over trans rights and lives. And while we're fighting with each other, they're taking all of our rights more and more, little by little, every day. There is no clean line of separation. And now when I think about all the times I've said... That's not a free speech violation because it's a private enterprise doing the restricting. I realize I wasn't actually considering all the ways our government laws and regulations are involved in empowering those institutions and companies, even nonprofits. The concept of private versus government is a fiction. Our government has its hands in everything about everything in our lives, and it's mainly working for people who do not have equity as a goal. As I mentioned before, in the US, our courts have found that actions, like voting, are speech. As someone who started my studies in communication and who has an area of specialization in communication, I've always found it strange that we separate speech from action. It's similar to how we have health insurance, but for some reason vision and dental aren't included in that, as though our mouths and eyes are somehow not part of our bodies that require health care and maintenance. Communication is action. Look at freedom of the press, which is part of free speech, and what it takes to put out a newspaper editorial or an article. Huge action is required to produce and distribute a newspaper, even online. Blogging is an action. Saying have a nice day to a customer is an action. And in the same vein, voting is speech, action is speech, and speech is action. The idea that they are somehow separate things is another fiction similar to the one that says government and private enterprise can be cleanly separated. We all saw the role that speech played on January 6th, when it was used to incite an insurrection. We know that people hire marketing teams and speech writers and designers, people who use speech, images, symbols to influence where we spend our time and our money. People can be reduced to tears when they hear a particular song on the radio. People go to school for communication degrees, for journalism and editorial degrees, and experience for broadcast journalism. We saw how misinformation or even disinformation was used to cause problems during COVID. Huge entities and wealthy people pour funding into lobbyists and commercials. You may have seen or heard about the he gets us ads that have been running. That campaign alone is upwards of $200 million to promote Christianity in its most generic form. Speech, communication, Expression has results and repercussions and requires effort. Speech is used to rally people for good or for horrors, and we know this. It's not debatable. We can talk all day about personal responsibility and how each person needs to own their actions, but none of that erases what we can see with our own eyes. That when someone wants badly to erase black and queer history, it's because they know that communicating those ideas and realities will influence our youth. You don't pass laws to ban speech that is ineffectual and has no impact on the world. Yes, we have our own minds, but we also have minds that can be influenced by what we hear, where we hear it, what we see, what we experience. Those messages all around us every day shape us undeniably. I was sent a short video about genocidal laws against the trans community. The friend who sent it noted that these laws constitute genocide according to the United Nations. But there are people who will say, that's not genocide. I'm including the video link in the description. A lot of the laws mentioned in the video are in place now because of speech that swayed public sentiment to support literal genocidal laws. When you read the UN list, it's right there on the page, but people tell my friend, that's not genocide. And this is where we have to ask, when does it become genocide? I think we grow up seeing images of the Holocaust or reading about Serbia or what happened in Rwanda. And we're so used to seeing a final result that we don't really take the time to consider that genocide isn't just that final step of wholesale slaughter of a group of human beings. It's a process. And the UN is addressing that process. It's like baking a cake. The cake can't be separated from the process of making the cake. And by that, I mean beating the eggs isn't a cake, but there is no cake if you can't beat the eggs. And you can't exterminate a group of people unless you're allowed to pursue all the parts of the process that lead up to the final extermination. If someone asked me as a project manager to orchestrate a genocide, I wouldn't say, step one, kill all of X group. That wouldn't even make sense. Kill them how? What sorts of risk assessment would we need? Who are the stakeholders? Who would we enlist to carry out the killing? Where does it happen? How does it happen? Is there a timeline? We would need to meet and plan, and to most importantly, get as many people on our side as possible. Otherwise, once we start to implement this, other people might stop us because most folks aren't okay with slaughter happening in their front yards. Part of genocide then is convincing people that it's okay to do harm to their neighbors, getting them to buy into the idea that this group of people, Group X, deserves this, getting them to buy into the idea that what we're doing isn't genocide and maybe isn't even all that harmful. My friend said that when you hear conversations about the Holocaust, very often people will say, how did this get all the way to a concentration camp and gas chambers? Why did no one stop it before it got to that point? But if we don't consider all the steps in the process to be part of a process of genocide, if we consider genocide to only be that final step where the slaughter actually begins, then it's very easy to see how it could get to gas chambers and prison camps with nobody stopping it. Right now, we have laws being drafted and passed that deny trans people a right to exist in public spaces, that deny them access to physical and mental health care, health care that medical consensus says they will die without. Our government officials are doing all they can to paint the trans community as predators of cis women and children, unsafe to have in our communities or in public spaces. They're pushing propaganda to drum up fear and hate and let's just say it, violence against trans people. And they're doing this so that they have a base there to support these segregationist and lethal laws. And we're not only allowing it, but defending it with noble sentiments such as, I may not agree with your position, but I will defend to the death your right to speak it. And what we're defending is early stage genocide, using speech as step one in the process. Step two... Are the laws and we're allowing those as well. The government of both Florida and Texas are in the process of creating lists of people who have sought gender care at universities or filed to change gender markers at the DMV. So yeah, my friend would like to know when we're planning to intervene because we're already at a place where the laws being passed meet the criteria for genocide according to the UN. And what are we doing? Apparently, our legal system, our Constitution, is set up to allow genocide to be enacted. Like we're letting someone take all the steps to bake a cake, but saying that cakes are atrocities. If the cake cannot be allowed to happen, then why are we sitting by and watching someone preparing batter and doing nothing? I don't know how to explain it. And I guess that's no surprise when you look at what we already did under this Constitution to Native Americans. I suppose if genocide were a problem, that wouldn't have gone as far as it did. In fact, the Trail of Tears was nothing short of a death march. And it's right there in our history. Our Supreme Court said it was completely illegal, and yet there was nothing in our Constitution that was able to stop it. Would people in this country stop a genocide today that we were okay with yesterday? How far into the process do we have to take it before it's time to draw a line? Then I come back to my thoughts on free speech and how many ways we curtail it around us every day that we consider legal, because we're expecting it to look like a law that says you'll be locked up if you insult the president. But instead, it looks like laws that make it hard to improve things or make anything better so that you'll give up and go home. You can gather and protest, but don't do anything that is disruptive. You can speak out, but if you advocate for too much change too fast and you gain momentum, we'll label you subversive and kill you or intimidate you into silence. And it's similar to this thinking on genocide. We expect it to look like soldiers lining up for a mass execution. But what if I can kill people and disappear them from public spaces without firing a shot, using the government's power and authority, Maybe we need to think about how genocide might be perpetuated if it needs to be done less overtly. Maybe I just deny people health care access. Or I make their lives so much hell that they do the job for me because they don't want to wake up to a hostile environment where they can't feel safe anymore and where the whole world hates and rejects them with no hope of change or improvement. Throughout the book, Moskowitz makes it clear they aren't saying that they're against the idea of stopping the government from locking people up for exercising speech. They're more asking, should the focus even be on this amendment on paper? Or should we be looking at what is actually going on with regard to speech in this nation and who has it, who doesn't, and what exactly it's being used for or against? I mentioned this last time, but it's about who's drawing these lines around what is and isn't platformed and why because a lot of effort is expended when someone buys cnn or twitter or battles all the way to the supreme court to be allowed to donate gobs of money to political campaigns anonymously is there a bigger question here of who has speech and why and who doesn't have it and why not because in the end isn't that where the rubber meets the road our society isn't separated into neat lanes. It's a web of interconnected threads. Pull one and other threads will also quiver. But at this point, I've really just thought about some of the issues that complicate the question of what constitutes a law that abridges free speech. Are we honestly just going to look at direct and overt laws that say we'll be in prison for 20 years if we complain about the president? Because that's so narrow that I'm not even sure it's useful. It's not that I don't agree that we should not be in prison for that. But if that's where we draw the line, and we're then going to let the government pass all manner of passive and covert laws that can be used to intimidate and threaten people into not speaking, are we really achieving anything or just making legislators be slightly more clever about how they infringe on speech? Similar to how we ended slavery by shifting it into our penal system. If we're going to claim that we value a concept or a right to the point that we're going to add it into our constitution to say it can't be infringed upon, it makes no sense to then allow endless legal infringement loopholes so as to sidestep saying outright what we're doing. I wish I could say that's where it ends, but there's more. It gets worse. Moskowitz talks about a rash of right-wing speakers that began being platformed on college campuses. You might remember this. Out of the blue some of the most reprehensible bigots were suddenly being platformed at higher learning institutions. And now, as fast as it came, we don't hear anything about it. Kind of odd, isn't it? Apparently, this was part of a larger effort on the right to enlist people on the left by creating a controversy and then framing it as an infringement on free speech. And from what I saw, it worked pretty well. People I know who would go to the wall to stop creationism being taught at a public school, were now advocating to put racists, sexists, transphobes, and a slew of other openly bigoted personalities on stages at universities. So, people promoting social sentiments that do lethal harm to other people deserved a platform because open and free speech is more important than a black person being beaten to death by police or a woman being sexually abused by her manager or a trans person losing access to life-saving physical and mental health care. Suddenly, the free speech rights of someone working at step one of genocide dehumanizing other people were more important than the literal lives of marginalized people. Moskowitz found this stunning, but not for the moralistic reasons you might assume, or at least not only for moralistic reasons, but also because universities are notoriously restrictive of free speech. They are, in fact, institutions that run on gatekeeping speech. Generally, only someone with a very elite qualification is allowed to access a student audience. We don't randomly grab people off the street to teach university courses. Then, when all these qualified people apply, someone at the university decides which of them deserves an interview and ultimately a job. Students who attend are filtered out throughout the application process. The books used for the courses are vetted. For every one professor given a platform, how many were denied that platform? For every book chosen as a course textbook, how many were rejected as required reading for the students in that course? Clubs on campus usually require a faculty sponsor. Most curriculum is determined by professional expert consensus. Again and again, speech and platforms are policed all day every day at every single university across the nation. But suddenly, the author of a debunked book promoting racism needs to be allowed to speak or it's the end of free speech. Moskowitz saw that this made no sense and decided to look into this weird rash of contested right-wing speakers more closely. And this was one of those times my heart sank for two reasons. First, I put down the book and started Googling information on right-wing influence on universities, and the feeling I got was a lot like the one I had when I started to find resources outside my conservative church teachings. Nobody was hiding evolution. It was always there. I was just dissuaded from learning about it. And that's the case here. It's not a conspiracy. The work is being done in plain sight. It's right there. But people aren't looking for it. We were so busy arguing if the right of a racist to speak on a campus was more valuable than black lives that we didn't stop to ask who was propping up this weird trending flood of bigot speakers? Who was drawing this line? Who was backing the effort behind this speech and financing it and why? The book was published in 2019 and I want to read something that turned out to be nearly prophetic. In the early 1990s, the literary theorist Stanley Fish and the conservative provocateur de D'Souza participated in a series of debates about political correctness, affirmative action, and the role of politics on college campuses. End quote. Moskowitz then goes on to say quote, Fish warned liberals not to fall into the trap set by conservatives if they claimed that they prized the same things free speech, universal truth, they'd be playing the game on conservatives' terms. Fish posited it would be better for everyone to acknowledge that debates over curricula and speakers on college campuses are not debates, quote, between political correctness and something else, but between competing versions of political correctness, unquote. In Fish's view, and in mine, most conservatives do not care more about free speech than liberals do. They simply define acceptable, correct speech differently. End quote. Think about it. The same people that many of my liberal friends were aligning with to defend the marketplace of ideas should be more welcoming to overt bigots on the right, then went on to successfully ban Black and Native American history from being taught in schools and to ban all mention of anything or anyone that is not cishet normative in schools where many of the children are, themselves, not cishet-normative. The people promoting these bigot speakers weren't free speech advocates. They were just looking for a way to gain sympathies and turn people on the left against the marginalized, and to get them to support bigot messaging, even to help stir up controversy to give these speakers even more sympathizers. Duped. They were duped and used just like some people were duped and used when conservative churches rebranded creationism as intelligent design. And I wish that were the worst of it, but it wasn't. Apparently, the right has been slowly changing laws and rules around university funding for decades. They're playing a long game. I'm already going long with this episode, so I'm not going to dig into the details, but I will include articles in the description for further reading. The too-long-didn't-read version is that by cutting public university funding, the schools must raise tuition and also become more dependent on the goodwill of high-dollar private donors to continue operating. This gives entities that can provide financial support a lot of power over the university system. And if that sounds dark, it is. But it's a darkness I've seen before. As soon as I read it, I remembered the book Blind Faith, the Unholy Alliance of Religion and Medicine. I had done a similar book report on that one many years ago. It describes a similar financial leveraging of university curriculum. An entity called the Templeton Foundation invested heavily into research around spirituality in medicine and healthcare. Early on, they were more overt about their religious agenda, but they eventually evolved to more carefully word their website and materials to sound more secular. Even the word spirituality is code for religion, as much of the research is related to religiosity. But in addition to funding research, they also paid authors to write books promoting spirituality in healthcare and to overplay the research often they would mention that there were hundreds of studies showing the efficacy of spirituality and health. They were on talk shows and made the rounds as news outlets picked up the information and repeated it. What they didn't bother to do was look at the research. Yes, there were a number of studies, but most of them were flawed methodology. They weren't published in reputable journals, or they showed no positive results at all. It was simply a statement that there was a lot of research, which was true research often funded by the Templeton Foundation itself. Templeton then offered grants to medical schools if they would include curriculum addressing spirituality in healthcare. The foundation, as I said, had folks writing their books, and those were the books that Templeton provided to the universities to promote the idea of inserting spirituality into medical practice. At the time the book was written, it was 20-something percent of medical colleges using this curriculum. But when I was reading about it, that number had already gone up to the high 70s. So it worked. And today, you can actually see questions on spirituality on medical forums and find articles written by doctors and nurses about incorporating spirituality into medicine as part of a holistic approach to patient care. It was while I was looking into this issue that I found an article by Dr. Robert Poole, who was engaging in a debate on prayer in psychiatric practice. At the time, he was working for the Royal College of Psychiatrists in an ethics capacity. He was disdainful of the intrusion of religion in healthcare and saw that it was fraught with ethical problems. At that time, he was sure that his own association would ultimately see that and drop the bid for prayer and therapy. But as time went on, he began to realize he was seeing the early stages of this same philosophy creeping into the UK, and it continued to progress. If you're interested in those conversations, you can probably find them online. But my point is that this model of using financial influence to control university curriculum isn't new. It's just more aggressive now. The right is not using an enticement, the carrot, the promise of a grant. They're literally working with governments to choke university budgets to make them vitally dependent on private funding. This is no carrot. This is the stick. They're not influencing these universities, they're taking them over. And if you want to have some real nightmares, then get online and start reading more about it. I'll include some links in the description to get you going. So working with government, right-wing private interests are starving university budgets to control speech, to control what is taught at public colleges. Is this an infringement of speech? When the government works with private financial interests to control speech and ideas on a campus and shut down ideas and curriculum it wants to suppress? Free speech is as free speech does. It's a weapon or a shield depending on who owns and draws the lines around what is and is not okay to restrict. And we can and do restrict it all across our society even at the government level. The only question is whether or not we value this right over other rights. When the right to be free from discrimination conflicts, do we side with oppressed people or oppressors? This is a real choice we as a society must make. We can't be neutral. And this is when it struck me. I wondered what free speech arguments would sound like if I applied them to the right to bear arms. What if I told you the answer to gun violence was to issue everyone a gun, both people with a history of aggressive violence toward others and also those in groups most likely to be harmed by gun violence because the best answer to a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun? What if I explained that if we don't give guns to known perpetrators, then we can't justify letting people who are most often victims of gun violence own guns for protection as well? What if I told you it was the very people society most objects to owning a gun, those with aggressive, violent pasts, who need the Second Amendment protections the most? If we can take guns away from those society most objects to having guns, then why even have a Second Amendment guaranteeing the right to bear arms? People we don't fear owning a gun don't need protection, because nobody objects to them owning a gun, It's the very people we don't want to be able to own guns who need to have guns, or we have no gun rights at all. I would hope you would tell me that my argument was ludicrous and socially destructive. And yet, swap the Second Amendment for the First Amendment, and these are the exact arguments being made that many of us swallow without questioning. Moskowitz points out that there is no mystery where fascism leads or where racism leads or where sexism leads. We have examples in history and the modern age. We know these ideas are socially destructive and lethal to vulnerable populations. We have tried them. They have failed. We have left them behind, or at least ideologically, some of us have left them behind. When we suggest that we can't guarantee the right to speak for a Holocaust survivor unless we also are prepared to platform a Nazi. Aren't we just saying that we aren't going to draw any distinction between murderers and their targets? That we have no way to tell the difference between someone promoting genocide and someone trying to prevent future genocide? If a nation can keep guns out of the hands of people with a history of violence then a nation can keep speech out of the hands of people promoting ideas that have already been shown to result in mass social harm, slavery, and death. Sure, there may be some gray areas, just like there are times we can't tell a murder from self-defense, but who would ever suggest that means we can't have laws against murder? There is nothing magical about speech. And if me suggesting that we might want to put a cap on it at genocidal ideas is upsetting then remember, speech is being policed and silenced. The question isn't, should it be allowed? It is allowed. The question is, who draws the lines and for what reason? And I'm going to vote not promoting genocide is a good reason to draw a line. I'd rather see that line drawn than the line drawn at Erasing Black History or Robust Sex Ed because bigots want to be able to weaponize classrooms against LGBT plus folks and people of color to keep them socially oppressed. And it's actually not just covering it, but lying about it. More on that in the description. I'm also going to include a piece of satire from The Onion that hits pretty hard on how media and journalists have completely mishandled issues around transgender oppression. It actually provides several mentions of free speech as propaganda using dark and biting humor to effectively demonstrate how the right uses the concept of free speech as a tool for oppression. Trying to enlist people who hold free speech as a sacred cow to help them further their genocidal efforts against the trans community. The article satirically argues that if journalists aren't allowed to lie about trans people and create fake narratives that fuel harassment and violence against them, then free speech will die. And again... Are we really that inept as human beings that we can't tell a killer from the person they're trying to kill? I guess I have more trust in myself than people who say we can't ever draw that line. At this point, according to my word count, I've gone on past an hour. So I need to end, but there is more material and more to think about. So I hope to dedicate one more episode to continue going down darker paths that Moskowitz has pursued that I haven't even touched on. What I've talked about so far is really small potatoes compared to some of the things the government has done and documented. And once you see that template, you start to recognize when it's happening today. And yes, it's still happening today. To be fair, they'll go after any group calling for significant changes. But the groups most likely to want to alter our system the most are not the ones who have the resources and power within the current system to live like kings. People who want to change the most are more frequently going to be those hurting the most within the system, those who are marginalized and vulnerable. So efforts to maintain the system will tend to do the most harm to the people already being harmed. And in this case, that means most government efforts to destroy subversion are going to be aimed at destroying the most effective calls for equity. But that's for next time. Like I said, it's just a lot for me to think about.